God in my Three particular attributes of God that are praiseworthy. They go beyond just the things that he does. They go beyond the things in our lives that make us happy or that we appreciate. But there are three particulars for which we can always praise God in our lives. Things that we can always look to about God that we can lift our voices and praise to him. So in Psalm 145, we had Sean at the outset read to us verses 1 and 2 and verse 21. And that's because these uh, three verses kind of sandwich the actual Psalm 145. And in verses 1 and 2, he read to us that the psalmist was extolling God, singing to God his king. And you see this poetic repetition, forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever, in verses 1, 2, and 21. So he sets out letting the people know who are reading this, who are singing this in the temple, that they are getting ready to praise God. And they're going to continually do it, not just when they're in the temple, but they're going to do it from now, forever and ever. And he repeats that. It's a repetition in scripture we need to pay attention to. So what we see here is he opens with those first two verses, and then he begins to go into some attributes of God that we can remember that are particular that we can praise him for. Beginning in verse 3, we find that the first praise particular that we can look at, that we can praise God for, is his greatness. The greatness of God. God is great. He is awesome. He is amazing. He is praiseworthy because he is great. Verses 3 through 7 speak to the greatness of God. We see from this text, when we look at the greatness of God, beginning in verse 3, that it's not something that we can fully understand. We have an idea or concept of God's greatness, but we can't entirely grasp exactly how great he is because he's beyond our understanding. In verse 3, praise the Lord greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable, unknowable, ununderstandable. But it's beyond our grasp. He is great beyond our understanding. We praise him for that. We can praise him for that. As he continues on in verses 3 through 7, we see that we can't fully understand his greatness. But we also see that because he is so great, this should be something that is both our message and our meditation. So even though we can't fully grasp the greatness of God, because he is so great, we can praise him. This is something that we should be externalizing and sharing with others, and internalizing in our personal meditation. Verses 4 and 5. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. When we looked at the symbolism of the monuments a couple of weeks ago, the whole point of those monuments was to share from one generation to the next about the greatness of God. And David may have had this, that particular moment at the Jordan River, as well as moment in the Red Sea in mind when he penned these words. It's the greatness of God is something to be communicated to future generations. We see that while we can't understand it, we should communicate it, but we should also meditate on it. Verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So David talks about how it should be sung and announced among the people generations, but he also makes the point to note that he, in fact, is meditating on the greatness of God, the majesty and the splendor of God in his heart. He's internalizing it. He's spending his time thinking about it, chewing on it, if you will. This is the greatness of God that can't be fully understood, but even in spite of that, we 
must share it with others. We must share it with future generations. We must take the time to internalize it and meditate on it. And then, in verses 6 and 7, we see that the greatness of God is something that we must also celebrate corporately, collectively. That's why next week's service is such an awesome thing. Because that's what we see here when the psalmist is talking about declaring and sharing and praising and celebrating the greatness of God, verses 6 and 7. He says, they shall speak. He's talking about those who would gather in the temple to speak and to sing and declare the greatness of God. He says, they shall speak of the might of their awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. So we see that idea reiterated again there, the greatness of God. This section opens with the, with the declaration of the greatness of God and how it's done by Abraham and Sarah. And it closes the section with a declaration of the greatness of God might and the awesome deeds of God. And he says, they shall speak of your might. Those who gather, those who worship, those who sing, as they gather, they will do this. Verse 7, they shall pour forth. It's this idea of this poetic picture of something coming out of a vase or a jar, pouring out. You get that imagery in the Psalms. And that's what should be the case. That should be the case with the celebration of the greatness of God in our lives. It should pour out of us. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame. And now we are locked in on verse 7. Because one of the fantastic things about this song is it kind of lays the groundwork for the rest of the song. So they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So what we should have had there from David was a spoiler alert, but there we go, a warning. Because that essentially is going to show us what we're talking about in the rest of the song. He opens speaking about the greatness of God and the pouring forth and sharing it, declaring it, meditating on it, and how it's beyond our understanding, and how it's something that we should communicate to future generations. And then he goes on to talk about or to reveal the next two things he's going to talk about. But before we look at those, let me ask you, when was the last time you meditated on the greatness of God? When was the last time you took a moment and just thought about how the greatness of God is immeasurable? It can't be fully understood, fully grasped. When was the last time that God did something in your life that was great and then you told someone else about it? You communicated it. You shared it, particularly to someone in your life who may be considered one of the that's what the psalmist is declaring that we should do here. That's what he was declaring that the people in the temple should do when they praise God. They should praise him for his greatness. Those wondrous words that might be We see that that's not all, though. He already revealed that, right? He gave us that spoiler in verse 7. We see next that the, well, see the first praise that people would do is they would say, Praise God for his greatness. He's so great that he's praised But then the next one that we see. The second phrase of the word is that we can praise God for his goodness. For his goodness. I don't know about you, but sometimes in life when things don't seem to be going well, it can be difficult at times to praise God for his goodness. Even though we may objectively know in our minds and in our hearts that God is good and that he wants what's good for us and that goodness is an attribute of his character, Sometimes when things don't seem to be going well or going right, 
it can be difficult for us to acknowledge that, to feel that way. Our feelings, however, are deceptive often and can lie to us, but we have the objective truth of the Word of God to remind us and the Holy Spirit to comfort us and reveal His truth to us that God is good even when it doesn't seem like things are. And the psalmist Peter writes about the goodness of God, beginning in verse 8. He says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's on the first we should all be thankful and praising for. The God is patient with us. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And what we see here in these first couple of verses in verse 9 is that we see that the goodness of God is reflected in both his grace and his mercy. It's reflected in the things that he gives us that we do not deserve, that he graciously provides, that he graciously allows, that he graciously gives to us. And his goodness is also reflected in his mercy when he withholds his hand of discipline and judgment, when he gives us an opportunity to repent, to turn. His goodness is reflected in his mercy. He's a merciful God. He is good, and because he's good, we see he is gracious and merciful. And what we see here in the poetry of this particular verses, what we see in the first line of verse 8 and the first line of verse 9, those are intended to be equal or intended to be similar or same in meaning. So he correlates gracious and merciful with good to all. And we see that then pictured in both his grace in the second part of verse 9, and then his mercy, or excuse me, his grace in the second part of verse 8, and his mercy in the second part of verse 9. So he's touching on both. He's speaking to both. His graciousness is his withholding his anger. He's abounding in his, his covenant, committed, faithful love with his people. And then his mercy over all that he has made, over all of us, withholding judgment to give everyone the opportunity to come to the Lord who would. Because God at any time can decide that's it. Last person is saved. Now that it's over, that he withholds until the last person accepts him. And accept the Lord. So we see that the goodness of God is reflected in his grace and in his mercy. And then in verse 10, we see that the goodness of God uh, is something that should move us to thank him. And if you didn't already begin to feel a, a pull to thank God that he withholds his hand of judgment and he gives us from his storehouse things that we don't deserve, well, then I don't, I don't know what to tell you because those things should motivate us to be thankful, to be grateful, to thank Him. In verse 10, all your works, all the things that He just referenced and talked about, all your works and the things that He's created shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And then He develops that in the second part of this verse. So He generically speaks of everything that God created, giving thanks for His graciousness and His mercy, for His goodness. And then in verse 10, He specifically says, not only will all your works give thanks, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. So that's all those that know him, that love him, that have that covenant relationship with him. We talked about a steadfast love, the covenant. He says that it should move us to thank him for his goodness, his mercy, his grace. And then he goes on to paint a picture for us of what that looks like and should look like. He does it in verses 11 through 16. He gives this picture or an image of a benevolent king. So he talks about the goodness of God, God's grace, God's mercy, that we should 
satisfy the desire of every living thing. David says, God is a good king. Now, what's amazing about this is that what was David's job outside of being a shepherd? He was also being a king. So for him to write about this in this way, this was something that he keenly understood, this dynamic of what it meant to be a good and benevolent king and how God is the best, the best king. And he's good. And we can trust him. And he is worthy of our praise because of the goodness. And then just for those of you who are signing along at home or for those trivial pursuits and questions, that parentheses there, if you really want to immerse our theme, it's a parentheses there because that actually was included in the original compilation of the texts. That was the letter Nun. The, the son of Nun in that particular psalm. And what they did is they actually found another source, another place where there were scrolls that were Psalms 145, where it had actually been written, and they put it back in. So whether or not it was originally intended to be in there or not, if you find it in there, it's noted that the parentheses. So what we have here is the goodness of God and our praise that should be for him, because he is a good king who loves us and is gracious and merciful. And we should declare that and celebrate it. As his people, we praise God for his goodness even when things don't feel good, even when life doesn't seem good. Because he is good, and he is a good king who does provide for all of our needs, does take care of us. He is good. And we see that truth in the scripture objectively. And it's interesting that David was writing. That one good king. And if you look at the pages of scripture, David's life wasn't always a shining light. Several times on his life, running away from another king who was not good, hiding in a cave, waiting until he was 40 to experience God's destiny for him, which he had told him about when he was a boy. To look at his life and go, wow, things weren't always good for the shepherd king. And yet later in life, Later in years, he could declare the goodness of God and that God is a benevolent king, always cares and always provides. We see we can praise God for his goodness, we can praise him for his greatness. And then lastly, again, spoiler, we saw from verse 7. Verse 7 again, we'll read, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Beginning in verse 17 through 20. We see the righteousness of God. Look what it says for a few verses there. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So when we think about the righteousness of God, I love what David does here. Because when we think of righteousness, we often think of someone who is holy and distant and calculating and maybe even a bit emotionally aloof and in lieu and in respect to wielding justice and righteousness. And yet David makes a very specific point here to note the righteousness of God and what the righteousness of God comes with. And we see that here in this text in particular, in verse 17. We see when we look at the righteousness of God from the pen of David, that the 
righteousness of God comes with his kindness. Look at what it says there in the text. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Lest the people forget that though he be a righteous God, he is also a loving one who demonstrates kindness. What makes us so powerful is that when we, we think in terms of our righteousness as people, because none of us is righteous apart from Jesus Christ. Well, that in Ephesians. Oh, our righteousness is like dirty laundry, dirty rags. But the righteousness of God, we find, is different. Our righteousness is often demonstrated in self-righteousness, which is not But God's righteousness is uh, an objective, benevolent righteousness that is accompanied by kindness. So he is not a distant, aloof God who does not care. But he is one who comes alongside of us and walks with us to show us his kindness while maintaining his righteousness. He does not buckle or, or bend or give in. So we see his kindness here in the text. We see also that with his righteousness, Comes his presence. So he is a God who cares, and he is a God who is there. Verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. The Lord uh, to all who call on him in truth. So that kind of develops that idea that the Lord is present and near, particularly for those who reach out to him, who call to him, who have a relationship with him. So especially for those who know him personally, God's presence is very real in the midst of his righteousness. So he is not distant, aloof, disconnected, or uncaring. And then we see that he goes on further, the psalmist David, who would have experienced all of this firsthand if you look at his life in scripture, verse 19 and 20. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Now what we see here in this particular text is an Old Testament understanding of salvation. When you see salvation, the word salvation is used typically in the Old Testament that refers to deliverance, or freedom from slavery of some kind, or any other number of things that relate to God liberating his people and making them free to serve and to love him, to essentially be slaves to him. So if you love for last week's message, go back and check it out if you haven't heard it yet. But that's this picture here, as this benevolent king frees his people who are captured by an enemy king and delivers them to his kingdom so that they can love and serve him. And that's what we see here. He rescues them, delivers them, because he is a good benevolent king. He shows us that his righteousness also comes with his protection, and his care, his deliverance, and his salvation. That also applies to us today. Because while in the Old Testament they weren't thinking of salvation in the same way in which we do when we look at the concept of the New Testament, they're very similar in concept. Because when Jesus Christ saves us in the New Testament, when he speaks of salvation from sin and new life in Christ, that is also a form of a form of rescue from an enemy king. It's something we can get a hold of, and we can see that God loves us in spite of our sin. He loves us when we cry out to him, when we call out to him in our sin to deliver us from it, and he saves us and delivers us. 
but it also speaks of the fate of the wicked one, those who would not turn to the Lord, those who reject Jesus Christ, both in the Old Testament and in the New. We see that those that reject God are bound for destruction. Because God is a righteous God. He's kind. He's there. He saves us. But he's righteous. And if we don't cry out to him to save us, and if we don't call on him in truth, we have nothing to look forward to but eternal. We see that we can praise God for his life righteousness, especially if we're saved, if we're born again, if we know Jesus Christ, and God is our king. We can praise him for being the righteous king. And then in verse 21, we have a wrap-up from the beginning, as we, as we talked about already, the sandwich of these concepts for the song, one word, but he says, he ends this with, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh Bless his holy name forever and ever. So next week is a, a praise service, a praise and worship service, specifically designed to do just that. Spend time gathered together as God's people, both here and at home, praising the Lord for who he is, also what he does, but for who he is for being a great God, for being a good God, for being a righteous God. So what do we do with this text? How are we through? What's your homework assignment that you're all probably chomping at the bit for to get throughout the course of the message? Here it is. Here's how we apply Psalm 145, the alphabet song. Over the course of the next week, make note of times when God shows you one of the praises some point over the next week, when God shows you his greatness, when he shows you his goodness, when he shows you his righteousness, take a note of that. Pull out your phone, go into your notes app, and jot it down real quick. Or if you happen to have an archaic pen and pencil or paper or whatever, do that too. That's fine. But make a note of it. Write it down and record it. Once you've done that, then, once you've written it down, you've recorded it, then, Make it a point to declare it. Tell someone else about it. And if you have the opportunity, praise him together for it. The situation and time allows as you share it with another person, take time to praise God and praise him for whatever that thing is in your life. And then Come share next week at the praise night service how the Lord revealed himself this week to you. Share it with the people, both here and those who are worshiping with us at home. If you are at home and you're not able to make it here, send it to one of us and we'll make sure that it gets to the right people here so that it can be shared how God showed up. Was a great God and a good God and a righteous God in your life in this next week. And if you want to know more about what it means to love God and make Him the King of your life, to cry out to Him in salvation so that you don't have to face eternal destruction, 
Jesus Christ is your Savior. Lord, you can be praised forever and ever. Please reach out to myself and someone from our church. We would love to talk to you about what God's Word says about salvation and what that means for you. Father God, thank you so much for the alphabet song, for Psalm 145. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be open, our ears would be open, that we would be ready to receive from you this week examples and pictures of your greatness, your goodness, and your righteousness. Lord, I pray that your spirit would give us the courage and the boldness to share with someone else how you have shown up in our lives, and that we would then come back and share that with you people next week and make this praise service even more meaningful and even more special than it could have been before. God, thank you for your word and for the encouragement that we receive and the reminder that we receive about you and why we should praise you. This is your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.